The following podcast is a live recording of a radio show first broadcast by Fresh FM with assistance from New Zealand On Air. Fresh FM is a community access media station based in Te Tauihu, the top of the South Island, New Zealand. If you or your group would like to know more about how you can have a program on our station, please contact us. Visit our website freshfm.net for our contact details. What would you do if you knew you were going to die or that someone you loved was going to die? Well, guess what? You are and you do. No my hari mai and welcome to Death Walker's Guide to Life, a euphemism-free show that deals with everything about death and dying you wish you knew but were afraid to ask. In it, we'll explore together how thinking and talking about death can help you live a life without regrets. Ko Kerry Sunderland Toku Inua. My name is Kerry Sunderland and I'm the host and producer of the show, which is first broadcast on Fresh FM in Titoihu, the top of Aotearoa, New Zealand's South Island, and then available around the world on many of the major podcast platforms. Deathwalker's Guide to Life is produced with the support of the Tasman District Creative Community Scheme, so big thanks to them. And if you'd like to find out how to get involved or wish to support the show in other ways, please go to the website, which is deathwalkersguidetolife.com. Kia ora and thank you for joining me for Episode 6 of Season 2 of Deathwalker's Guide to Life. In today's show, I'll be speaking with Melanie Mayle, host of the Christchurch Death Cafe and organiser of Death Matters New Zealand, a one-day conference in Christchurch that features a wide variety of professionals, academics and specialists who gather to further our understanding of ageing, dying and grief through a mixture of presentations, workshops and Q&A sessions. But before I corridor with Melanie, it's time for the first bookend, Death in Print. This week, I'd like to introduce you to one of my favourite essays of all time. It's called Thanksgiving in Mongolia, and it's written by Ariel Levy and was published in The New Yorker on the 10th of November in 2013. Now, this segment comes with a trigger warning today, but as I hope you all appreciate, given this show is all about how we live our lives knowing that we will one day die, really the whole show has one big trigger warning But all the talking and thinking about death still can't prepare anyone really for sudden death. In this heartbreaking yet heartwarming essay, Levy writes about miscarriage. The story opens with Levy recalling a childhood game she played with her parents, one of the few occasions she felt neither ostracised nor ill at ease. Of course, as she writes... The other natural habitat for a child who loves words and adventures is the page, and so she became a voracious reader. This young literary explorer grew up to become a writer. She also proceeded to spend the next 20 years or so putting herself in foreign surroundings as frequently as she could. And so Levy finds herself on assignment in Mongolia when she is five months pregnant. Her doctor told her that since she was still in the second trimester, it would be fine to fly. It would be, she thought, her last big trip for at least a year, or maybe two. Other people expressed concern, but she liked the idea of being the kind of girl who'd go to the Gobi Desert pregnant, just as she had at the age of 22, liked the idea of being the kind of girl who'd go to India by herself. On her first night in Ulaanbaatar, in Outer Mongolia, 
Levy started feeling a little strained, so she went home early, then woke the following morning with an insistent pain in her abdomen. She emailed her local contact in uh, Ulaanbaatar to get his doctor's phone number, then went out to interview people for the rest of the day. At dinner on that second night, she writes, something was happening inside me. She ran, she left the dinner before the food arrived, ran back to her hotel room. And when she got there, the pain became unbearable. She remembers thinking, this is going to be the craziest shit in history. Sometime later, there was another person on the floor in front of her. My baby, she writes, was pretty as a seashell. Of course, it would be impossible to tell you why I'm talking about this essay without revealing what is effectively a major spoiler. Really sadly, the baby died before the ambulance arrived. Levy had, in 10 minutes, become a mother, but her child did not survive. Yet this experience had flicked a switch in her head. She was a different woman now. She realised she, just like everyone else, could not outrun Mother Nature. I recommend this essay to you because of Levy's uncompromising honesty and the way she uses concrete language to bring alive what could otherwise be a very abstract retelling of this tragic event. In Levy's capable voice, she brings the reader with her on her journey of adventure and heartbreak at the edge of the earth. The essay later grew into her 2017 memoir, The Rules Do Not Apply. It's definitely in my top 10 favourite memoirs of all time. You're listening to Death Walker's Guide to Life. Coming up, I'll be talking with Melanie Mail. Now it's time to welcome my guest on today's show, fellow Death Walker, Melanie Mail, who is also an author, artist and photographer. Melanie and I first met back, I think it was at the 2015 Evolve Festival, not long after she was a guest on Fresh Start Monday, which was the breakfast show on Fresh FM that I was doing back in 2015. I invited Melanie to join me on the breakfast show to talk about her two self-published books, Thank You, Living in Gratitude, which was published in 2014, and Goodbye for Times of Sadness and Loss, which was published in 2012. Both feature photographs she took during her travels around the world, paired with quotes, poems and sayings. Thank You emerged from her Red album and Goodbye from her White album. In Goodbye, Melanie invites us to feel our own sorrows more deeply. It's a beautiful keepsake for anyone, but a particular touchstone for someone who is feeling sad and in need of comfort. In early 2016, Melanie took part in the inaugural Death Walker training program with Zenith Farago, which I helped organise. And soon after, she started hosting the Christchurch Death Cafe. In 2019, she hosted the first Death Matters New Zealand conference, which ran again in 2020. After it was cancelled last year due to COVID, the third Death Matters conference will take place on Friday, 23rd of September at Tūranga, the Christchurch Central Library. And we're going to be talking a little bit more about death matters um, today in the show. So kia ora, Melanie, and welcome to Death Walker's Guide to Life. Hi, Kerry. It's nice to be here. Thank you so much for joining me. So 
I wanted to start by asking you about your first experience of death. Well, that would have been when I was about eight years old and my grandfather had died. And this was the first death in the family that I was part of. And I, I remember the whole household was very sad and I thought, what can I do to help? I know, I'll go and get dressed ready to go because everyone was getting dressed in their best clothes. And I put on my most hated dress that mum had made me and big bows and lots of smocking, put it on and I came out into the hallway ready to join them and mum took one look at me and she said, you're not coming. And so that was my first experience of death, that death was not for everyone. And so my brother and I were left behind. We never got to go to the funeral. And it kind of set me off on a pathway of feeling very um, separate to death. There wasn't another death in the family for a, probably a decade. And I, I never learned how to be with death. Do you yeah. know why your mother told you that you weren't coming? It wasn't because think, of what you were wearing, obviously. it was No, it was no. I don't think she even registered I was wearing the hated dress. Um, it, I think it was very much um, we were products of the times that children were to be shielded from death. Death was something scary and um, unpleasant and kinder to leave the children behind. So, uh, you know, we hopefully we've come somewhat further down the pathway and then to include children in the process that it's actually healthier and um, death is part of part of life mm. yeah absolutely and that leads on beautifully to my next question um, so you have been for a number of years an advocate for a more death wise death literate community and I was curious whether that began for you with the exploration of your book that resulted in your book, Goodbye, or whether it had happened earlier, whether there was a key event in your life that sort of made you quite uh, committed to, to, to death literacy in a way. Yeah. Uh, well, I guess the short answer to that is no, because I came to um, death acceptance kind of through the Goodbye book. The Goodbye book was really born of several things that were happening in my life at the time. I just, I had been working, my background was in graphic design and marketing for a, a big company. And all my creative juice was poured into these big commercial projects. And I had, had been doing that for years. And I had a young family and there was a yearning in me to create something very personal, something that was my own, that was really an answer to my own heart's longing I guess and I've done a lot of traveling and I had a, a beautiful collection of these images that I had taken all over the world and as you mentioned in the intro I'd been I'd been collating them all into albums by color and I kept being drawn back to the white album because the images themselves made me feel really peaceful and serene and I also had a big body of quotes and prose and song lyrics that I love to read and immerse myself in and so the idea came to me to use to use the images and combine them with all these beautiful quotes and song lyrics and into a project that could offer people solace in times of sadness and loss and so that's really how the book came about now I didn't have any background in death as you know I, I was I was a complete scaredy cat I was just I hated funerals I I didn't I couldn't be with anybody who had had a loss I was I was just 
a terrible friend, a terrible family member and member of the community when it came to death. And so the book, in a way, it's kind of strange. I guess I'm looking at it now from the outside going, gosh, that's a strange project to do when you're such a death-phobic person. But I, I, I created it from, it was a creative project from my heart. And I, I didn't really see in the beginning, of course, I didn't realize what it was going to lead into. And, and the book, of course, once the book came out, um, it changed the way I re- interacted with people. It changed conversations around me. And I, and I became part of that, pro- that changing process. Mm. It was, it's very, I mean, you as a visual artist, I guess, and a photographer, uh, the pictures led the way to, um, but it was also, I think, must have been some sort of inner wisdom to know that, you might even need some of this in a, in a beautiful oh, book yes. format for your own own personal <laughs> reasons. <laughs> well, yeah, so the book, I started working on the book um, and partway through the process, my own marriage just, my, life, my marriage ended suddenly and my whole life was in complete turmoil. I mean, everything that I'd known, everything that was a constant was, was inconstant. And the only thing that was this beautiful thread of continuity in my life, was this little book project. And it really, I think, ended up being um, something that gave me so much inspiration and hope because the people, the research I was doing and the people I was meeting kind of became part of my own support system. And, uh, yeah, it's quite incredible. When I, when I came out the other end and published the book, um, I had had this experience of loss, although that experience in no way prepared me to, to be with other people whose losses far were far, well, far more tragic than mine. I mean, my marriage had ended and, and I was living with shared custody and, you know, the business I'd been involved in was, was no, I was no longer had access to it. I mean, it was all, it was just chaos. Um, but, it was interesting as, as people began to share with me their experience of the book and how much they loved it, they also began to share stories of their own losses. And I had this awful feeling again. It reminded me of all the times in the past where I had run away from death or, or gone, oh, I don't know what to say. I don't know how to be with this. And so, again, I just had this feeling of I'm unqualified to listen to their stories, even though I loved the intimacy and I loved the vulnerability and I wanted to be with them. I just didn't feel I had, I, I, I just didn't know what to say, I guess like many of us. And in a way, it was that feeling after the book came out, those conversations that led to this eventually led to the sense of frustration. Like, why don't I know what to say to people when they are suffering a loss? Um, we are all going to go through this. We, we're going through it constantly in life. And why don't we speak this language? And, and does the language belong solely to professionals trained in this area? And so that eventually led me to meet Dr. Lois Tonkin, who's one of, who was one of New Zealand's top grief academics. And she invited me to do her certificate in grief support and again I mean I was very reluctant to do it and I said oh no I can't do that I'm a creative person and 
you know, I won't, I won't fit in and I don't belong there. And she was very, very encouraging. And she said, no, no, come and see everyone, come and do it. And so I joined this class and there's 24 people in the class. We go around the group, everyone introduces themselves. They are all counsellors and therapists in either private practice or working for, you know, funeral homes or, in, you know, corporate, corporates. And so it comes to me and I'm like, oh, it's all my, all my worst fears. I'm having to introduce myself. I feel, I said, oh, my gosh, I feel um, like I really don't belong here. I'm, a, I'm a, an artist and this is my background. And um, the amazing thing is that they were so kind, so inclusive and so encouraging for people like me to be there. And they said, you know, this is exactly what I'd wished for, that the, the brief conversation Learning the language of loss belongs to all of us. And, and so it began. And I, I learned so many things with Lois. I think one of the highlights, the piece of learning that dropped in and really resonated for me was that grief looks different on each of us, that grief is as unique and individual as our own fingerprints and that you can have two people grieving the same loss and they will they they may process it and it may look very different on each of them and I think if we know that we can be kinder to each other less judgmental more patient and we can get over this um, assumption that grief looks a certain way you know that you should be crying or you should be you know whatever it looks like it might look very quiet it might look very withdrawn or it might look very normal so that was my experience of um, becoming more fluent in the language of loss. Mm. And then that led into, I think it was probably after that, that I, you and I had a conversation about the Thank You Project. And I do remember we were talking about thank, the Thank You Project and the, the value of gratitude on air. And in off air, you were saying, you would love death walker training. And I was probably saying, no, oh, no, no, I'm not a death person. <laughs> <laughs> but you, but you, you took the, the big leap and came along to the inaugural death walker training with Senator Virago, which was at the beginning oh, sure of 2016. Did. So, so what, what happened for you as a result of being part of that, that training program? Well, yeah. So, I mean, it's hard to separate death walker training from the trainer, as in Zenith. I mean, she's such a powerhouse of inspiration and fun and joy and presence and, and wisdom. So she, she taught me a lot, just her vitality and love of life and also her presence and her, her calmness as well. It's a very interesting mix in a person. So that was very inspiring. And she taught me also the value of being neutral. Now, I'd never really explored that concept before. I understand about beginner's mind and approaching something as a beginner, which I, I do with the death work, but also adding in this idea of being neutral, like you don't actually have to have an opinion either way. You don't have to jump in and give advice. You can just remain neutral and responsive. So that was really cool. But yes, you're right. She, that process of the death walker training, it's, it's there that I, I really found my role within the 
emerging, I guess, death acceptance community in New Zealand, and that was to become an educator and encourage the death conversations. And Christchurch Death Cafe now has over 800 members, and it continues to have new people come through, old familiar faces, and, and just this wonderful, such a diverse range of people from different backgrounds, and, we, and the other thing I tell you is we, because at Death Cafe, people don't introduce themselves by their profession. So I don't really, we don't really know what they all do because they just introduce themselves by name and then we, we are talking about um, whatever is on their minds that day. I, I believe that as a conversation starter, you invite others to consider six key questions. What is your experience with death? What scares you about death? Should people be able to choose to end their own lives? What would you like uh, your funeral to be like? Do you believe in life after death, ghosts, reincarnation? And how do you feel about ageing? And I've sort of already asked you about the first question, your, your experience with death, but I'd love to know your response to the second. What scares you about <laughs> Well, I'm just first going to clarify that I don't ask any questions anymore. Okay. So, so we just said the only question I ask is, why did you come today? And that allows them to answer it however they like. They can answer it with one word, but as in curiosity, or they can share something, share a story or an experience. So there's, I'm way, I'm, I guess you could say just by letting go of the questions, um, there's less structure and I'm way more open and flexible with the flow. Um, but to answer your question, what scares me the most about death? Well, I'm, so death, for, you mean death for me? Yes. Met my death. So I, I'm actually really excited about death. I see it as the beginning of a whole new adventure. And, and because I have a very strong spiritual life, like I believe that we are spiritual beings having a human experience. And so once I die, I will be unconstrained by the physical body and I will be off having this amazing expanded experience, visiting everybody, learning, traveling, you know. Um, so, but what, but what scares me, and I know what you're trying to get to, what scares me about death is probably the dying. So I would be not scared, but if we were really drilling down into it, I would say I don't want to die in pain. I don't want to be in pain. I don't want to be it to be a lengthy series of losses, of loss of come with aging, you know, which increasing dependence and loss of dignity and all those things. Um, so, but all those things, none of us have control over them anyway. Um, so I don't tend to get too stressed out about it. I trust that things are moving forward all the time and there are new, new breakthroughs and new, new ways of supporting each other through this process. So it doesn't frighten me. I probably would be, I would be more upset or sad about the the deaths of people around me than my own because because death people when we lose someone or something we love there is a natural grief is a natural response to that and that is sad and we have to learn to live with it my next question was going to be about how death cafe has evolved but you've sort of already answered that by saying that you don't use those six questions anymore you allow the topic to arise from the group that's present and you said that there were 800 members now how many roughly turn up each each month is how big is the group when you when you're meeting well having said i i have 
less, I, ha- I open it up and have less control. I am quite, <laughs> I do limit it to 14, 14 people. Okay, okay. So I, That's so optimum for good conversation as a yeah, I think, group, yeah. Yes, and I've had, we've had bigger groups in the past and, and we've broken them down into smaller groups and, and it was really funny. We had this tables of four or five and the tables were they were all listening in on each other's conversations worried they were missing out on a better conversation another table was laughing in the corner well they all want to be part of that conversation and so we all agreed that okay we'll keep in one big group but it will be a slower process and you have to take turns and listen but you're not going to miss out on anything so (laughs) it's been nice I mean we just keep it small and yes it's it's booked out every time and it's a waiting list but you know that's that's the nature of it yeah. So, how did the death? I'm assuming the Death Matters Conference, the one day conference, sort of emerged from the Death Cafe that you saw mm-hmm. a need there to bring people together and give them a chance to really drill down into some specific topics. Um, so, tell that's us about awesome. that. How how did death? Where did you come up with the idea for Death Matters? Well, that's exactly what happened. I mean, it was from the constraints of Death Cafe. So, Death Cafe is very, it's a fixed model. So, you know, there's no speakers no topics and no advice and no therapy. And so every death cafe, it's like a, a new beginning each time. We, we, it's two hours of conversation, group-led conversation. And so over, over the years, I, I had this urge, as did many of us, to want to find out more and to have speakers to teach us and learn from and um, and. I wanted to remain true to the Death Cafe model, which I think is brilliant. And so rather than trying to change it or morph into something else, I saw this opportunity to create a one-day conference and actually have some of these people I've been meeting come in and speak and speak to the wider community and really provoke us and inspire us and, and include us and empower us. And so that's really how it began it, the Death Cafe, you're right, it was a springboard into the conference. And then the conference has, it's in its third year, if you like. And it's, um, it's really, it's, it's exciting and it's a lot of work putting it all together. But um, it's, it's sort of taken on a life of its own. I mean, it feels like the people that come to the conference and the speakers, it, it belongs to everybody. It's not mine. And this year, the conference has become an, it's leading in to a whole month of death-related events, which which is incredible. I mean, there's more than 20 events happening after the conference this year. And one of the centerpieces for that is the Transforming Death Art Exhibition, where uh, eight to ten local artists have been invited to create a short series of work based on their own experience with death, loss, or grief, um, an area which most of them had not really worked in before. So um, it's yeah, it's amazing. It's, Another it's opportunity for people to to relate to it in a different way. Yeah, wonderful. So tell us about what just a little bit, a few of the highlights of what's happening on on the during the one day conference. And, of course, we can include the links to your website mm-hmm. and the program and everything because tickets are still available. Is that correct? Yeah. Great. Okay. Yeah, so give us a so, few highlights of, um, of the one-day part. Okay. So the first, Zenith Farago is opening the conference. And, of course, this is a, a joy to me 
because it wasn't that long ago that I was sitting with her as a student. And now it seems like things have come full circle that she's coming to New Zealand. She's going to open the conference and she's going to stay on and run two cohorts of death walker training. Um, so she'll be talking about from a death walker's perspective of living well as a practice for dying well. And then we have Reverend Megan Don. She's going to be talking about coming to death, coming to death through presence and love uh, and sharing some of her own personal stories and brushes with death. And then we have Claire Turnham. Claire's a teacher amongst many other things, but she's going to be teaching us the introducing us to the possibility that we can care for our dead at home. And I know that sounds quite provocative for people. It was for me. And I imagine I'll be the very last person to take myself off and do a home-based death care course, how to ceremonially wash and prepare a body. I mean, that just seemed a step too far. But it was very, very beautiful. And it was shortly after I'd done her training that my beautiful cat was killed and I found I was able to sink into some of these simple practices that she had taught me and use them in a really beautiful healing way. It was amazing for myself and, and for the whole family. So home-based death, home death care with Claire. And then we have um, Dr. Catherine Smith. She's going to be talking to us about assisted dying from a doctor's perspective and she's actually offering the service so one of the first one of the few physicians in New Zealand so it's going to be I think fascinating for us to find out more about what is the process how do you how do you apply who qualifies and what it's like having performed this having performed an assisted dying from a doctor's point of view we also have Marla Hughes who who's son died five years ago she's been exploring near-death experiences and looking at evidence of the afterlife since then she's interviewed people all over the world scientists philosophers doctors and will be sharing her amazing insights and wisdom and then we have Jacqueline Mitchell who's a psychic medium and she's going to be sharing some of the bigger philosophical questions her experience of visiting the other side, bringing messages through from loved ones who have died, um, how we live again and again, and why we want there to be something beyond human life. So all sorts of interesting things. And again, it's not that everyone in the audience is going to go, oh, yes, I, I believe it all. It's, it's not about meeting the audience where they're at necessarily. It's about stepping, pushing ourselves out of slightly out of our comfort zone and looking at different points of view and challenging our thinking. Um, so those are the six speakers and there will be Q&A sessions in between so people can go deeper into subjects with people they are interested in learning more from. It's, it's a fascinating lineup this year, as it was the previous two occasions as well. Do you have a personal, what what excites you? I mean, obviously bringing Zenith over, you've already indicated that excites you about it, but is there any, or is it like singling out your favourite child, trying to pick out one thing that you're most excited about? Well, yes, having Zenith here. I mean, all of them. I, I guess it's just it, just bringing the conference in, to, to life is exciting and involving, engaging 
so many people. I mean, that's really cool. And I mean, it's not just, I'm not just sort of working behind the scenes. I'm talking to a lot of people who are coming to the conference all the time. So it really feels like we're this community. This huge community. Yeah, because they they've got questions or they want to change things and change workshops. So there is a, an ongoing conversation and a lot of the people coming, um, some of them, well, some are already working in support roles with this deaf community and they want to ask if they can share some of their their work. And so, I mean, it, it's wonderful to see the collaborations and the cross-pollination. I guess the thing that excites me is, is always with death. It, it's making the uncomfortable comfortable. That's quite, that's exciting. And seeing people soften and, oh, you know, take a load off as a result of these conversations. I think this this fear of death or death phobia, it's a it's an invisible load on us that we've grown up with, well certainly my generation and in in my Western culture. And it's not until you start to talk about it then the load comes off that you realize that it was there. So that's that's pretty exciting. And and the, the other thing is seeing how it it's just grown into this month of different events and training and art and opportunities for people to explore. Perhaps you could mention the website address now um, so people oh, can go and find out more about sure. the program just, and the post-conference workshops. It's all on deathmatters.nz. Oh, that's very easy for people to remember. <laughs> so I noticed um, when I was having a look through the program uh, and mention of date with death. So tell me, tell us a little bit more about date with death. Oh, so date with date with death. It's so funny. Well, it's uh, date with death is a workshop idea that I. So David Garb, who's a wonderful psychologist here in Christchurch, he he and I. Are planning a workshop in, in the post-conference lineup, and he said to me. So we were talking about, and he, and he said to me this question: "If I could tell you the date of your death, would you want to know?" And I said, "No, no, <laughs> I definitely don't. I would obsess about it." No, and I said, "Well, what about you?" And he says, yeah, "Absolutely, I would want to know." And I'm like, "What?" And he said, "Yeah, I can plan accordingly." And so this this planted a seed, and I went, oh, "What if?" We create a game and we have we give everyone in the workshop a card at random and it's got a different date on it and that's the date of their death. So I went home and I created this set of cards and, you know, and they've all got a different amount of time on them. And so I've, I've now been out and I've been playing this game with people and it's provoked the most interesting conversations wow, in my yeah. family and amongst friends and amongst strangers. And again, it's a it's almost like Death Cafe, but it's in a very it's in a different format because it starts with a question, how much time have you got left? And what would you, and you might have yeah, and you might have six hours or you might have 50 years. And it, it just it's very playful and light and funny. And there are a few wild cards in here like there's this one here, the cryo card. Your body gets frozen next week and you wake up in 50 years. <laughs> you know, and so what, what does that bring up? So it's just been, um, it's still, um, I'm still working on it and refining it and, and playing it and getting feedback. And you know. I would love to um, be part of okay, playing that awesome. game. 
Yeah, yeah, it sounds fantastic. Yeah. And and once you finish sort of trialing it, and is it your intention to to put it out there into the world as something that people can purchase or and and, and run themselves or how how will that work? Yes. I had well, yes, they could. Um I mean I don't think it can do any harm. I think it will bring up all sorts of interesting questions. I mean, like it did in, in the family. It was very interesting. Yeah, like my mother, my mother got six hours to live. <laughs> and so it's kind of like, I said, what are you going to do? Are you, is your will up to date? And she said, oh, I want to, I want to check. I'm going to drive off and see my lawyer. And I said, well, you've only got six hours. Maybe you should just phone him. You know, so it was great. And, and other people had longer and, but um, my first thought was, wouldn't this be an amazing game for doctors and nurses to play? It's, it's sort of the premise of, of this whole show is about how our knowledge that we're all mortal and we're all going to die one day can lead us to live life more fully and more deeply. And yeah. um, so I, I, I just, it really speaks to me as an idea. I love it. So we're coming back to those six questions I mentioned that you did use at the beginning when you first set up Death Cafe. But one of the questions was around what would you like your funeral to be like? So in a variation on that question, I would like to ask you what song, if you could nominate a song that you would like played at your funeral wake or the celebration of your life, because I'm compiling a farewell song playlist on Spotify from all my guests. So what song would you nominate today? Oh, well, that's very tricky because, I I mean, it does change. I, you know, I guess like a lot of people, I have fads on songs and then I, I have, I imagine one year if I wrote these are my songs for my funeral and then, you know, many years go past and then it's, Oh no, that is no. I'm not into ABBA anymore. I'm, <laughs> but what I would choose at the moment, and there's several, but you can have as many as you like on the list. Would be "All My Tears" by Annie Brun. I love that; so beautiful. And then I would have "Way Down We Go" by Kaleo, recorded inside a volcano. Wow, amazing! Okay. And then so I'd have, listen to that. Yeah. Then I'd have Jeff Buckley's version of Hallelujah because yes. we have to we have to go down into the sadness. Zenith taught me that. And then as people were leaving the funeral, I'd want Breathless by Nick Cave. <laughs> Do you know the one? Breathless. Yes. It's yes. really yes. so beautiful. I just love it. Yeah. So any of those. I'm not. Yeah. I'm sure Nick Cave is another along with um, Jeff Buckley <laughs> who features at the top of oh. many people's funeral song <laughs> I'm sure, I'm sure. But, yes, I, I, I'd I, love to. I, why not? I can add all four of those to the playlist. <laughs> and uh, and certainly that doesn't lock you in because we change our mind, like you say, all the time. Thank so I just wanted to wrap up by asking you just to sum up for us, for our listeners, how your awareness that life is finite has changed the way you live. What would be the one, the most significant change for you personally? Well, that would definitely be my shift into appreciation and living a life with way more gratitude, and and that keeping a you know maintaining a sense of mortality with memento mori, you know that sense of living our days with the idea that, that our days are numbered. I, I mean, and not sort of freaking out about that all the time, is I use simple little gratitude practices. Uh, and, and that's probably the biggest change, not sort of working away thinking one day 
I'm going to have a big holiday. I'm really going to kick back and take it easy. It's building these tiny, tiny moments of gratitude into the everyday. And I do that using my camera by taking photographs of, of nature and beautiful things. And I also do it by drawing and slowing down to appreciate the tiniest, the tiniest delights. Mm, so beautiful. That's um, lovely. My answer to that would be gratitude. Gratitude, yeah. gratitude is a fantastic antidote to death. It's almost like the other side of it is we, you know, yes, there is, we are constantly living with loss in our lives. So there is the reminder and the reflection to savor what is here now because everything, nothing, nothing is permanent. It's all passing. So savor what is here now. Absolutely. It's kind of the opposite to the bucket list, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, yeah, you're right. There's a lot of there's a lot to be said for tossing out the bucket list. That's right. Yay for tossing out the bucket list. <laughs> Great. Thank you so much for joining me on today's show, Melanie. I've really enjoyed our conversation and I look forward to uh, seeing you in person in Christchurch on the 23rd of September for the Death Matters Conference. Many thanks. You're listening to Death Walker's Guide to Life with Kerry Sunderland and I've just been speaking with Melanie Mayle. And now it's time for Death on Screen and today I'd like to talk about Elvis, the extraordinary new biopic directed by Australian filmmaker Baz Luhrmann. Now I've been a huge fan of Luhrmann since his 1998 hit, the spoken word song based on an essay called Everyone's Free to Wear Sunscreen. Then there was his fabulous trilogy of early films, Strictly Ballroom in 92, Romeo and Juliet in 99 and Moulin Rouge in 2001. It was a long wait for Lumen fans like me until Australia, which starred Nicole Kidman and Hugh Jackman and came out in 2008. But it's felt like an even longer wait until now, with what I believe is his first film since The Great Gatsby, which was released in 2013. Finding out the film was about the king himself, Elvis Presley, perhaps explains why we've had to wait so long. The film follows the life of the rock and roll icon, singer and actor told from the perspective of his manager, Colonel Tom Parker, who is played by Tom Hanks in a fat suit. The opening scenes are chaotic, carnival-like, almost comic-like. Thankfully, the erratic and experimental shots eased into more conventional and watchable cinematography once Lumen settled into telling the story of Elvis's rise to fame. I'm just going to play a little of the official trailer for you. Tragedy, but it has nothing to do with us. It has everything to do with us. Reverend once told me when things are too dangerous to say, sing. I'm on before the show, and nobody's gonna remember me. I need to get back to who I really am. And who are you, Oz? making the most of this thing while I can. This car will be over in a flash. We are the same, you and I. 
We are two odd, lonely children reaching for eternity. Unknown actor Austin Butler plays the title role. After impressing Lumen with an audition tape of himself singing Unchained Melody, you soon forget you are watching an actor. It's really quite an extraordinary performance and I will eat my shorts if he doesn't get nominated for Best Actor at next year's Oscars. Olivia Dijong plays Priscilla Presley, who apparently has had some input into and gave her blessing for this version of the story of Elvis's life. Another spoiler alert. It seems to be the theme in today's show. But guess what? Elvis dies. Luhrmann does not choose to go down the rabbit hole and explore rumours to the contrary. The story packs no punches when showing the perils of putting your life into another person's hands. As Colonel Parker says at the beginning of the film... Elvis became his destiny. In doing so, Elvis's destiny was no longer his own. We've come to the end of today's show. You've been listening to Death Walker's Guide to Life with Kerry Sunderland. Find out more about the show and catch up on previous episodes at deathwalkersguidetolife.com. Once again, Kamihi, a big thank you to Tasman District Creative Community Scheme for supporting the show. Matiwa, see you next time. Fly away. Fly away. The podcast you just listened to was a live recording of a radio show, first broadcast on Fresh FM, the top of the South's community access media station, with support from New Zealand On Air. The funding of Access Media makes these podcasts possible. To find similar programs by other community access media stations, go online to accessmedia.nz.